Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about spinning around in circles. That's right. This uh, this is probably going to be a two-parter. Sometimes we figure this out as we go, but I believe this will be a part one and a part two. And we're going to be we're going to be looking at at humans spinning around in circles from several different vantage points. Uh, you know, what is it doing uh, uh, at a, in a biological level? Uh, you know, a, a psychological level. Um, how does it factor into various traditions and games, etc.? Um, the this is one I'm, I'm pretty excited to do, and the genesis for this one was a listener email who wrote in about um, about spinning uh, in um, in ballet mm-hmm. and we were we, we had a brief back and forth in a listener mail uh, where we talked about it. and we're like yeah we should totally do an episode so here we are but to start off I want to I want to start off somewhere where at least my mind went to if not first then maybe second or third and that is the world of um, of, of fantasy uh, combat uh, has found in science fiction and fantasy films but also especially in video games, because when I think of people spinning, I have to say I instantly think of M. Bison from Street Fighter doing his Psycho Crusher attack. Do you remember this one, Joe? Well, I didn't know it was called a Psycho Crusher, but I remember M. Bison. So if you ever played Street Fighter, he's like the big guy in the hat. He's like the final boss or something, isn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, or he tends to be. I think sometimes they, you know, later in incarnations they introduce new bosses, but he's he's the boss. He's this yeah. boss of Street Fighter. Yeah, and I think he's supposed to be some kind of dictator or something. He's dressed up in in I don't know, off-brand military regalia. He's wearing like mm-hmm. a like a captain's hat that's red and some kind of uniform, but he's also got the magic powers and so he can attack you by flying at you kind of like the Raiden like horizontal dive towards you, but he's spinning around in circles. Yeah, it's a, and he's flaming, of course, and all. So it's it's a oh, cool, cool attack, um, and and you'll see various versions of that particular attack in various games. But there's also the version that you see in the Mortal Kombat games. There's a character named Kung Lao. He's the guy with the um, the, the the razor blade hat, uh, and you also see something similar with Baraka. But but they both have attacks in some of the games where they spin around like a top, and either either it's offensive, like they're um, they're spinning like a top and coming towards you with their blades, or they're spinning like a top. Uh, Kung Lao does this where he he's deflecting you. Like so, if you jump at him, he starts spinning, and then bam, you're injured. Well, it's very much uh, child brain self-defense logic where you think, like, if I spin my arms around in circles, nobody could come anywhere near me, right? Right. It's like that Simpsons bit. I'm going to move my arms like this. Uh I'm going to move my feet like this. And if you get in the way, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you're going to get hit. Uh, I think there's also a a Looney Tunes Tasmanian Devil vibe to uh, certainly the the, the Kung Lao uh, style attack, you know, where you're just spinning in one spot and you're just spinning so fast that you become a little tornado. Right. So there's at least an intuition people have that, you know, you could really do some damage to somebody by spinning at them in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, in Star Wars, Darth Sidious uh, busts out a cool Psycho Crusher style. I'm not sure if it's actually an attack, but more of like a an advance, like a way to quickly get at your opponents. Uh, but he uses this in both the Revenge of the Sith and the Clone Wars series. Oh, okay. You know, I got to say, I, I hate. To, I, I know you're more of a fan of the prequels than I am, and I'm not trying to start a fight. But I, I got to say, one of my least favorite things about the prequels is there's just way too much spinning in the lightsaber battles in the prequels. Way too much, like, jumping and <laughs> 
flipping around that the lightsaber battles become less dramatic and more frantic. I like the lightsaber battle in uh, the empire strikes back, you know, that that's got like classic mm-hmm. sword fight drama. Uh, the ones where like Yoda's just doing like 14 somersaults in the air and these three sixty jumps and, and they're, they're doing the, the psycho crusher and twirling around like a screw. I don't know. It kind of, it kind of takes me out of the star Wars mindset. Well, Yoda's short in stature. I mean, he's got to he's got to do those flips in order to combat a taller opponent. Um, I, I, uh, I I I see what you're saying, but I, I do think that uh, that the Sidious spin works really well because it's like he comes out of nowhere, and then he he instantly uses more traditional attacks to to kill like three different Jedi masters. So it seems it seems to work well for him. You can't argue with success, Joe. I. I- Correct there. And also, I, I admit my ignorance, because when you shared this clip from the movie, I thought for a second it was Christopher Lee. And I was like, oh, Christopher Lee. OK, but uh, shows what I know. <laughs> well, uh, it, it does raise the question, though. Do we see that many full spins in actual combat? Uh, be, because I, I suppose even with something like a spin kick, you have to be careful, right? Like you don't want to throw off your, your own balance or present your back to your opponent um, without even getting into the magical effects that are often associated with these attacks in, in movies and video games. Um, now, I have to say I'm not a real fight aficionado. I'm not like into MMA or boxing or, you know, any, any of these. I tend to like my my combat uh, fictional and worked. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in those contexts, I love a good spinning kick. I love a nice uh, roaring elbow in uh, Japanese pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I was initially unsure, like, does it make sense to spin or is that just a, a risky flourish? Well, it's funny. I remember asking this myself from the first person perspective, because when I was a kid, I took I'm doing air quotes here. Taekwondo. I guess I, I took whatever like severely watered down version of this martial art was being taught to young children in Tennessee in the 1990s. You know, it's mm-hmm. like uh, I, I'm not sure what exactly I was learning, but I took Taekwondo classes. And I remember thinking even then as a child uh, having questions about the, the the practicality of the spinning kick moves, because there would be a type of kick you do where you would turn around, you'd turn all the way around and perform a kick. And I was like, why couldn't you just kick without turning? Does this do some kind of advantage? Would this ever be applicable in a real self-defense situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, like even as a kid, I remember having the thought, this feels more like a dance move than a useful fighting technique, uh, which I think is kind of applicable because at least the way I learned Taekwondo it was in many ways indistinguishable from a dance class. Like you were learning routines, like patterns of movement that were, you know, they were exercise. It was aerobic exercise and it was, I guess, supposed to look good, look cool from the outside. I don't know. Well, I mean, there is a lot of crossover between dance and exercise and martial art. Uh, you find you, you find these uh, these intermingled uh, to to a large extent, and I guess also there's the psychological aspect to fight too, right? Something might be more about confusing an opponent. So I wasn't wasn't sure on this either, but I did a quick glance around on YouTube uh, to see, okay, are legit MMA fights um, ending with spin kicks? And I did find this this amazing clip from, I think, earlier in the summer, and apparently went viral. So if you're at all into MMA out there, you, you've, I'm sure you've seen this, but it's uh, uh, Hakeem Buckley is the MMA fighter, and he busts out this spin kick uh, in the middle of this match, and it's just a complete knockout. I, I'm usually not one to find a lot of joy in um, in clips of like legitimate uh, knockout blows, mm-hmm. but this one was pretty uh, impressive. I always find they make me 
they look kind of sickening, like watching somebody's head snap back and then yeah. they fall to the ground. It's like, ugh. Yeah, th- this one is a bit sickening. So don't don't ch- don't look at look for it unless you you want to see this sort of action. But it did answer my question. Like, well, that's a spin kick. He certainly sp- s- did a complete spin on that and just knocked a guy out. So, mm-hmm. um, so so that initially answered my question. And I started looking around a little bit more on that. And I, I found an interesting post about Taekwondo spinning kicks at TurtlePress.com by Sang H Kim. And the author points out that this apparently was uh, spin kicks weren't a vi- were not a viable tactic in Taekwondo till the 1980s. Uh, and, and the author explains that this is due to advances in footwork and changes in fighting stance preferences that made it more of a viable option. Also, less restrictive protective gear uh, made it more of a, an option, as did sort of a broadening of style to include different weight classes and sort of added creativity to the style. Hmm. So I found that interesting. Okay, well, I'll have to take their word for it on that one. I, I, I cannot claim to have thoughts on this. Well, I'd be interested to hear what any martial arts practitioners out there uh, listening to this episode have to say. Certainly, write in and let us know. Uh, you know, within your style or within you know martial arts in general. So, one of the things that gets going in my brain when I think about spinning is that, uh, and and I'll have an example to talk about a little bit later on, spinning around in circles as an adult is not fun. And in fact, uh, it's, it's not fun for like significant periods of time after you're done doing it. But I remember as a child, I loved spinning around in circles and I would just like do it. I'd just be out in the yard and be like, yeah, I'm going to spin around till I fall over. This is great. Yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, adults, if not most adults, can can uh, can relate to this. Yeah, because mm. you think back on the fun, spinny things you did as a kid. Like, remember merry-go-rounds? Um, yeah. I, 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 they still have these occasionally at playgrounds, but it was a standard at playgrounds when, when we were kids. And it would just be kids just getting this thing going to as fast as possible, just incredible speeds. Oh, my God. And you would just ride it. You we know? had this oh, – there was a playground near my grandmother's house that had this spinning aluminum death machine that I think they originally <laughs> – I think they eventually had to take out because it was just injury city. Every time children got on it, they'd end up having to go to the hospital, and I loved this thing because you, you could spin it so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it was, it was human powered, you know, it was one of those where you'd push it, you'd get it going like Conan the Barbarian pushing the mill wheel. Yeah. Uh, but then you'd build up a lot of speed and then you just grab hold and hang on. Uh, I can't imagine what kind of horrific injuries came off of this thing, but, but it was great when I was a kid. Now, now that sounds like torture to me. I mean, the idea of spinning around like I did as a child for fun. Now that sounds about as appealing as a kick to the groin. It's just like, <laughs> why would you want to do that? I'll also add that the uh, I remember the playground merry uh, uh, the spinny things the merry go rounds and whatnot. They would often have that uh, you know that foot trail beat into the dirt around it. Oh yeah, which of course yeah. would become uh, just a complete circular mud pit after a rain. Right, exactly. Uh, another big one is uh, is of course when you're a kid rolling down a hill like uh, you know where you mm-hmm. you lay down and then you just roll down the hill. Uh, like I remember that being a lot of fun, and I remember you know I encouraged that with with my own son at a hill near our, our house in a park. But as an adult, you're like, oh, my goodness, there's a there's a weird rock here. There's some sort of a pipe here. All right, here's a fire ant nest. Here's another fire ant nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not even getting into the fact that, yeah, as an adult, the idea of spinning that much, you would just you'd never get up once you got to the bottom of the hill. Yeah, and I think these uh, these changes in experience are not unique to us. It seems like there, there's something going on where like spinning spinning is highly attractive to children and and it loses its luster as the body ages. 
Yeah. So let's let's start with the kids. Why do the kids love to spin? Well, I was looking around uh, for information on this, and I, I, I found a, a wonderful post on this at uh, the Penn State Extension's Better Kid Care page. And they point out that spinning, rolling, and swinging are crucial sensory and motor skill inputs to help uh, uh, children's nervous systems mature and organize. So they really need these sorts of big body movements in ways that really make our tendency to isolate them in desks or in front of teleschool computers and so forth, uh, you know, uh, more than a bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe there's less of that now. I, I, I know that education has 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 evolved somewhat and uh, they understand the need for big body movements and, and and so forth and they understood it to a certain extent when i was a kid you know you would still have pe and whatnot but yeah kids need to spin around you you know when a child spins in circles it's because their body craves it and the same goes for rolling around on the floor standing on their heads rhythmically swaying uh, so they need a space to do these things I mean, it seems in a way it's information gathering. You're 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 calibrating the system like you have to do with your phone when the gyroscope or whatever gets you know out of whack. You you've got to do some exercises to get it back on track. Yeah. So in this uh, extension article, uh, the Penn State extension article, they they point out uh, there are some very specific ways that spinning helps uh, children. So first of all, it gives them a sense of body awareness, establishing their center for improved uh, coordinated movement across both sides of their bodies. Uh, it also improves sure, sure-footedness, which uh, is something that might seem counterintuitive sometimes. You think, oh, this kid's just spinning around in circles. You know, they're falling all over the place. They're going to run into things. But it's actually helping them become more sure, sure-footed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has also been shown to improve concentration in the classroom. And they point out that a 2005 study from Quar, Frick, and Frick – uh, two different fricks, uh, found that the uh, centrifugal force of many spinning activities and experiences activate the fluid-filled cavities in the inner ear. And these are sensors that help the brain orient the head, quote, which develops grounding and sustaining attention to task. Hmm. And then overall, it's a boost to the vestibular system, which controls balance, posture, gaze, stabilization, and spatial orientation. And, and there's also apparently a link to impulse control. Fun fact, right after I finished uh, researching this section, I went off to get some coffee and was immediately attacked by my son with uh, imaginary lightsabers. Oh, yeah. The and duels are going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he, has, he has a pair that he, he, uh, he really likes, Ahsoka Tano, and she has two, uh, two lightsabers. So he's made two of them out of uh, uh, tinfoil um, <laughs> cardboard tubes. Oh, nice. And uh, so anyway, he was attacking me and I observed quite a bit of spinning in his attacks. Uh, and I tried to do one spin and I nearly fell down. Uh, <laughs> and then he cut my head off. But, cool. um, but, uh, but uh, I, I looked around and I've noticed that, uh, that there are actually lightsaber exercise classes for kids out there that they can do like virtually. Mm-hmm. And I'm tempted to sign him up for one, especially after learning more about the importance of spinning around in circles. That's genius. I would have done that as a kid. You want to yeah. have exercise, get that energy out. You just pretend to have a lightsaber. Mm-hmm. How has nobody thought of this before? Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I, my, my only hesitation is, uh, is what's, what is it going to mean for the lamps and the televisions in your house? You've got to have a good space for that, I imagine. So let's come back to the adults. For, for most of us, why does spinning around in circles make us dizzy. Why, when a yoga instructor uh, on a yoga video asked me to spin around just like three or five times, why did I have to lay down for like 10 minutes after that? (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is funny because this is a question that I expected to have just a single 
totally straightforward physiological answer. And instead, I found a strange variety of answers to this question without a lot of acknowledgement that that there was variety in, in the ways people are answering this. So I'm not sure if I've stumbled on something that's actually controversial or different uh, different sources are just emphasizing different aspects of, of uh, vertigo induced by spinning. But in any case, the answer to this question definitely ended up taking a shape that I wouldn't expect. Uh, but before we get to the direct answer of like why spinning in circles makes you dizzy – I think we have to meet a fascinating and important element in this discussion, one you just mentioned a minute ago, which is the human vestibular system. Uh, so interesting fact number one, we've talked about this on the show many times before, but maybe you're new to the show. Uh, humans actually have way more than five senses. I think it's funny when, when people end up talking about the five senses. I guess you could maybe call them the big five senses. They're mm -hmm. the most obvious as senses, you know, sight, hearing taste, smell, touch, but we have other ways of getting information from the outside world and coordinating that within the brain. And one of my favorite examples of a lesser known but extremely important sense distinct from the big five is proprioception. It's the sense that informs you where the different parts of your body are. So how is it that you can type without looking at the keys? How is it that you can close your eyes and you still know where your hands are. You know whether they're at your sides or over your head, even if you're blindfolded. We have a sense that's constantly updating the brain with information about the position and orientation of the rest of the body. Yeah, that's one that I, I, I can't help but feel that it's, it's so invisible to us because it is so constant. Mm -hmm. It's not as easily disruptable, you know, in, in the sense that we can close our eyes. We can uh, sort of stopper our ears mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, but uh, but in terms of turning off proprioception, um, not so easily done. And then also, it's just so it's so close to us. It's you know this is very much a you can't see the forest for the trees situation. Yeah, uh, yeah, th that is very interesting. It's harder to turn that one off than it is uh, some of the other senses. But in a way, I feel like that's part of the um, when people go for sort of like a sense deprivation or certain types of meditation that are mm -hmm. that try to ignore sensory stimuli or just focus on one particular sensory stimuli. I think one of the difficult things is ignoring that like feeling of where your body is. And that I think that's one of the important reasons why uh, meditation often requires you to be in a position of rest because it's easier yeah. to ignore the position of your body if you're not really doing anything active with your body. Yeah, yeah, and definitely it's the case with float tanks where if it's calibrated correctly, you're you're floating in water that's about the same temperature as your own body, and uh, yeah, it's it's about sort of losing a sense of of your physical self. Yeah. Uh, but there are all kinds of senses. Some some bleed more easily into others, or you can make the argument that they do. Like you can make arguments that there are different types of of uh, touch sensations. You know, feeling of tactile pressure versus feeling of heat. You know, it, you can talk about that. Uh, another interesting one is chronoception, the the sensation of the passing of time and judgment of duration. Mm -hmm. That actually is a sense of the external world, and there are types of nervous system conditions that can affect your chronoception. In fact, not just conditions as in diseases, but chronoception changes as you age, for example. But here's where things get even weirder. The ear is not only responsible for the sense of hearing. There are other senses that are located within the ear. 
Organs in the human inner ear are also responsible for one major component of equilibrioception, or the sense of balance. And these organs together in the inner ear are known as the vestibular system. If you get a chance, you should look up an illustration of the human vestibular system. It is like a chambered nautilus or an alien squid snail. It's got one section which curls, and this is uh, less related to the uh, equilibrioception. That's the cochlea, the, the swirling snail shell part. But then coming out of the head of the swirling snail shell of the cochlea, there are these strange tentacle things, these three looping canals, each one like a semicircular tube snaking back on itself. And then you've also got uh, these two tiny organs below the or positioned down below the, the bases of these three semicircular canals. These two tiny organs are known as the utricle and the saccule. And together, the utricle and the saccule are what's known as the otolith organs, which literally means ear stones or ear rocks. Uh, uh, also in the realm of cool names, this whole complex of organs here is known as the labyrinth or the vestibular labyrinth, the bony labyrinth. You have one labyrinth in each ear. Mm. Now, if you go back to these hammer loop snake tentacles, the, the three semicircular canals, which each sort of loop in a different orientation, these things are hollow and partially filled with fluid, uh, fluid and gel, uh, the gel known as cupula and the fluid known as endolymph. And they include interior spaces with these little uh, hair cells, these little follicles that are sens sensitive and connected to nerve tissue that runs out to the rest of the brain. So when you move your head, so you turn your head to the right or the left, or you tilt your head from side to side, or you tilt your head forward or back, inside these loops, the fluid moves around in the canals. Uh, in the inner spaces, and it comes into contact with the different hair cells. And the hair cells sense the movement of this fluid, and this can give you information about the orientation of your head. And the hair cells are connected to the brain via a nerve fiber called the vestibular nerve. And then the brain interprets the stimulation data from those hair cells into sense information about the orientation of the head. And the main part of the brain involved in processing, coordinating information about balance and movement is the cerebellum, which if you've seen an illustration of the brain, it's that little meaty lump positioned on the rear underside of the brain. It's kind of the brain's butt. It's sort of right at the top of the, the spinal column. So everybody, feel your brain and, uh, and, and you'll, you'll feel it. Get your, get your hand right in there. <laughs> Now, ab about these canals in the labyrinth, one thing that I think is really cool is that, okay, so there's one canal that is devoted to sensing the tilting of the head forward or backward. There is another canal that's devoted to sensing the turning of the head from side to side. And then there's another that is uh, dedicated to sensing the tilting of the head toward each shoulder. And so what you can realize is that these three canals represent the three different dimensions of space. So if I'm understanding correctly, I think I am. These three canals also correspond to the three attitude variables of aircraft and submarines, which are roll, pitch, and yaw. So what mammal heads and B-52s have in common 
is that they live in three-dimensional space. And if you're going to adjust movements through three-dimensional space and sense uh, all the different ways that you can change your attitude or change the, the vector along which you're moving, then you need a sensor for one of each of these three dimensions. Interesting. Now, Rob, I know you're a big fan of uh, of airplanes. Do, do you ever think about your body in terms of roll, pitch, and yaw? Uh, no, I, you know, I don't think I, I have. Though it's certainly now that you may bring it up here, it's, it's making me think back to like flight simulator games. You know, where you mm. you definitely have uh, visual displays of roll, pitch, and yaw, uh, but we don't think about that in terms of our own personal experience of physical reality. I mean, we are babies of the 3D space, so it it, it governs uh, man and machine alike. <laughs> Now, earlier I also mentioned these otolith organs. They also have sensitive hair cells, but the sensitive hair cells here are arrayed with strange mineral formations made out of calcium carbonate. Uh, again, hence otolith, the name ear stones or ear rocks. And calcium carbonate is the same compound that makes up the bulk of the shells of sea creatures and pearls, but also chalk. It's a very widespread, widely found mineral. Uh, it's used in tons of human technology. It's used in, for example, uh, agricultural lime uh, to make chalk for a blackboard, all kinds of things. But I also found one totally off-topic connection that I couldn't bear not to mention. And that is that there's one common stable crystal form of calcium carbonate known as calcite, and there is one very strange and beautiful form of calcite known as Iceland spar, which is a transparent rock. It's a mineral that is clear like ice or like uh, slightly, you know, uh, slightly jacked up glass. And mm. it's been speculated that this transparent crystal, Iceland spar, was actually the historical reference point for an object that is recorded in medieval histories known as the sunstone. There are references to this in uh, medieval Norse texts, I think, with, uh, talking about Iceland, uh, because this crystal can be used to detect the direction of the sun when you're sailing in the Arctic and the sun is totally obscured by clouds. So you're out, it's a gray day, you can't see where the sun is at all, but you need to know where the sun is in order to navigate your boat, you can apparently use a chunk of this transparent crystal to find the location of the sun by, uh, by the crystal's effect on the polarized light coming from the sun through the clouds. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, because I think we've all been, you know, say, out, out on the beach, perhaps, on one of these days where it's overcast. You know the sun's up there, mm -hmm. but you're not exactly sure what position it's in. Yeah, so calcium carbonate itself is just a very uh, versatile and mini-splendored mineral uh, on, on its own. In fact, it's the subject of a, of a great classic talk in science, the, the talk uh, about a piece of chalk that was given by, uh, by T.H. Huxley. But, uh, but I, I also included a picture for you to look at here, Rob, which is a scanning electron micrograph that I found of calcium carbonate crystals from the, uh, from the utricle of a cat. And mm -hmm. so it's showing these, these tiny crystals. Each one is microscopically small, but the, yeah, they, these rocks, basically these crystals play a role in the physiology and function of the inner ear. Now what these otolith organs do that's different from the, the uh, semicircular canals is that the, the otoliths detect vectors of acceleration, horizontal and vertical. And so this is why you can feel whether you are going up or down in an elevator, even though you can't see out of it. So in an elevator, 
you're not changing the orientation of your head. You know, you're not bending it forward or whatever. You, the head is staying fixed relative to to gravity, basically. But you are moving. You're going up and down, and so the the saccula in there can detect that. So we're left with this really strange fact. Inside your ears, you have tiny organs lined with crystals of the material that makes oyster shells and pearls, and they <laughs> detect which directions you're accelerating in, even if you can't see, which I thought was just a beautiful connection. Yeah. The crystalline new aginess of the inner ear. <laughs> Oh, that'd be great. I've never heard of that one. People who like give their friends crystals for like certain healing powers or something. What do the crystals of the human inner ear do? If you like slay your enemies and take the crystals out of their ears. Can you, oh man, that would be a great, uh, that would be a great function of some sort of like alien invasion story where the alien has to feed on, uh, on, on these crystals. Mm hmm. You know, I was also – I didn't get super deep into this because it's kind of a tangent, but I was also just looking at studies indicating the the the, the many faces of, of a healthy otolith and what it does for the body. For example, one study I was looking at mentioned the possibility that otoliths are – possibly important for the formation of spatial memories and that the degradation of the effectiveness of the otolith oysters may account for the decline of spatial memory with age. So as you get older huh. and the oyster shells in your ears, the otoliths become a little bit less good at what they do. And this actually could be related to people being less accurate at forming spatial memories as they get older. Interesting. Yeah, because there's, there's certainly there's the, the brain itself, but the brain has to make use of sensory information. Yeah, and this ties into stuff we've talked about before in how um, in some ways the brain remembers spaces by simulating movement but through them. Mm -hmm. But the vestibular system is also, it should be mentioned, a team player. So the, these canals and the otoliths, they don't have much use alone, but rather they coordinate information in the brain with other sensory systems, such as the visual system, the proprioceptive faculties, to form a comprehensive movement detection and feedback and adjustment system. And there's all kinds of stuff that has to happen, like, uh, for example, your visual system adjusts itself to account for changes in the movement and orientation of your body that are sensed by the vestibular system. And so uh, the eyes can see your orientation with respect to the environment. The vestibular system senses the head's orientation and movement with respect to gravity and to inertia. The proprioceptive system feels where the rest of the body is in relation to the head. And these systems all kind of have to work together to, to give you a picture of here's where your body is and how it's moving. And so when we come back to the question of dizziness and vertigo, uh, I guess that's addressing what happens when these systems get out of synchronization with each other or when one of the systems begins to fail or have problems. And so to ask the question, like, what is dizziness? That's also kind of an interesting question because there are a range of different sensations that people call dizziness. They're all kind of associated with one another. So, for example, I was uh, reading a paper called uh, Dizziness and Vertigo Syndromes Viewed with a Historical Eye by Doreen Hoopert and Thomas Brandt in the Journal of Neurology published in 2018. And they cite uh, a definition of dizziness and vertigo from the uh, International Barani Society of Neurootology. 
And they say, quote, vertigo is the sensation of self-motion when no self-motion is occurring. Dizziness is the sensation of disturbed or impaired spatial orientation without a false or distorted sense of motion. And imbalance or unsteadiness is the feeling of being unstable while sitting, standing or walking without a particular directional preference. But I, I got to say, so so that may be applied at the clinical level or in the in the literature, but it's clear that when people talk about dizziness, a lot of times what they're talking about here is vertigo, right? It is the right. sense that you are spinning or moving when you're not. And though a lot of sources I was reading said uh, the sense that you're moving when you're not, to be pedantic, I think technically what you'd really have to say is it's the sense that you're accelerating, not the sense that you're moving, because once you're moving at a constant speed and direction, movement is imperceptible. Hmm. It's only changes in speed or direction that uh, that are sensed in the inner ear. But I think you're absolutely correct about how we just we, we tend to refer to things as dizziness or feeling dizzy, even if we're t talking about vertigo, et cetera. Right. So I think a more you know street level definition that people would use, I found on the Mayo Clinic website, uh, they say dizziness is a term used to describe a range of sensations such as feeling faint, woozy, weak or unsteady dizziness that creates the false sense that you or your surroundings are spinning or moving is called vertigo. Uh, so these terms might be used differently in the literature sometimes, but I think we can basically say, you know, dizziness, vertigo, we're, we're sort of talking about the same thing or related things. Now, that same paper I just mentioned, the one by Doreen Hooper and Thomas Brandt in the Journal of Neurology, uh, it has a section where it looked into uh, the etymology of terms used for dizziness, which, uh, which I thought was actually extremely interesting and revealing. So uh, in this part of their paper, they say, uh, quote, Latin, for example, has at least two source words to describe the condition vertigo. Vertigo in Latin refers to turning, spinning, rotating, and is derived from the verb vertere, meaning to turn. Another word, caligo, means darkening of the eyes, funereal crepe, and I think that's a cloth that would be placed over over a, over a body at a funeral and and dizziness so strange darkening of the eyes the cloth over the over the body at a funeral and dizziness and they say that this word caligo and not the word vertigo appears in ancient text passages referring to heights and the symptoms of a fear of heights so you know often people will feel vertigo or dizziness if they've got a fear of heights and they you know look off of a cliff or something but they say that caligo was also used, quote, metaphorically for dizziness arising from feelings of exaltation or for being overwhelmed and losing one's grip on reality. For example, Tacitus, in his work Historiae, describes how Vespasian wanted to become an emperor himself after Nero's suicide. He is said to have felt dizzy when the soldiers addressed him as emperor and used other high-ranking titles. Huh, interesting. But then this next piece of etymology I thought was also really interesting. They say uh, the word giddy is believed to be derived from the Old English word giddig, meaning insane or literally possessed by a god. 
The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word dizzy as having or involving a sensation of spinning around and losing one's balance. It is said to originate from the Old English word dissig, meaning foolish, and is thought to be related to the Low German dusig, meaning giddy, and the Old High German tusig, which relate which translates as foolish or weak. So, really interesting this this ancient um, historical association between insanity and being possessed by a god with the with the feeling of dizziness interesting huh but okay anyway to to look at the question of what's actually happening in the body when you spin around in circles and become dizzy uh so first of all i have to say i could not find a single authoritative scientific paper that really looks directly at the this question there are some studies that uh, that look at dizziness from a, a question of like things that can be done to alleviate it. But if there's a paper that just looks at what causes dizziness and spinning, I was not able to find that yet. Maybe maybe it's out there somewhere and somebody can find it and send it our way. I did find a number of articles on popular scientific websites, but again, these articles were somewhat in disagreement with each other without any acknowledgement that they were citing different explanations. So one example that I found in a number of articles had to do with the effects of inertia on the fluid in the canals in the inner ear. Now, this is an article. This is from an article on Live Science by Natalie Wolkover. And uh, the author here writes that, uh, quote, when you spin in a circle, inertia initially causes the endolymph. Remember, that's the fluid in the inner ears that moves around to, to stimulate those hair cells. And that allows your body to detect orientation of the head and motion. Uh, she, she says, uh, inertia initially causes the endolymph to slosh in the direction opposite of your head's motion. It resists the movement of your head, dragging the cupola. And again, that's the, the, the slower moving gel that's in there backwards with it and thus causing the sensory hairs suspended inside the cupola to bend against the direction in which you're spinning. However, within moments, the endolymph and thus the more gelatinous cupola adjust to the movement of your head and start going with the flow. This causes the hair cells to straighten and your brain no longer receives the message that you're spinning. Your perception has become normalized to the rotation of your head, giving you the sense that you are still and the world is rotating around you. Okay, so that would sort of pair up with the understanding of dizziness that it is the sensation of motion even when you are not moving. Right. Like I'm no longer spinning around in circles. I've stopped, but I feel like I'm spinning around in circles and therefore I have to lay down. Yeah. And from a first person perspective, I would say that is part of the sensation of dizziness, uh, though dizziness might also be more than that. Uh, but but of course, then when you stop spinning, Walkover writes, you have halted the rotation of your semicircular canals. And because of inertia, the endolymph keeps spinning. And so it's kind of the way that, you know, you can spin a bucket around, but then if you stop spinning the bucket, the water in the bucket will keep spinning. It'll keep sloshing. Um, she writes, because of inertia, the endolymph keeps uh, spinning, resisting change yet again. As the fluid continues to move, it once again deflects the cupola this time in the direction in which you were spinning moments before, and as the oozing cupola bends those hair cells, a signal of movement is transmitted to the brain. You sense you are moving, but you're not, and that's dizziness. Okay, so, you know, based on the other things I've been reading, that explanation would make some amount of sense. It's saying that the effects of inertia on the fluid in the canals in the inner ear uh, after you stop spinning causes some kind of, you know, uh, 
that causes some false signals in the brain. And this is disorienting, especially when paired with your other senses, like your eyes and everything are telling you you're not spinning anymore, but your inner ear feels like you are. Yeah, the, the, the slosh bladders in our, in our head are all sloshed up, basically. And this is mirrored in another article I, was, uh, I found on the subject, one in Popular Science by Claire Maldarelli, uh, again referencing the movement of the endolymph in the cupula. Uh, Maldarelli writes, quote, The problem comes when you stop. Your muscles are able to start and stop really quickly without any issues, but that fluid doesn't work as fast. Even though you stopped, the fluid is still moving, and it takes some time for it to finally stop. While it's still moving, those hairs are still picking up on the motion and sending signals saying, I'm moving to the brain. The brain receives the signal, but at the same time knows the body is perfectly still. And the same explanation about the, the inertial effects of the moving endolymph within the canals in the brain uh, or in the, in, in the inner ear, this is also mirrored in the How Stuff Works article that I found on the subject. It's basically the endolymph keeps moving after you stop spinning. This confuses the brain. Okay. While these explanations – so I found this across multiple sources. It does seem to sort of make sense. But if this is true, one thing I wonder about is why is it that spinning in particular is liable to make you dizzy and why not other types of movement? Couldn't other types of movement apart from spinning also cause you know inertial drag in the fluids in your inner ears and that your body would stop moving before the fluid stops moving? Yeah, that's a good question. I you know based on some of the stuff we'll discuss, I think mostly in the next episode, it does make me think about the the frequency of of use when it comes to spins. You know, mm-hmm. um, like in terms of just straight up acceleration and deceleration. Uh, in our daily lives, like we might not be running marathons and passing batons all that much, but we are still accelerating and decelerating fairly regularly. Yeah. Uh, whereas the spin, uh, especially you know, the sort of spins that we think about uh, and, and experience related to dizziness, those are not going to necessarily be a regular part of your daily life. That's true. Yeah, it could be a it could be a conditioning thing. And the conditioning thing would actually tie into something that we're going to talk about in a bit when we get into how uh, like dancers and, and ice skaters supposedly deal with this. But before we get into that, I wanted to mention the other explanations I came across um, for, for why we get dizzy when we spin in circles. And specifically, these other explanations are based in the brain's constant attempt to coordinate vestibular information with visual information from the eyes specifically. Mm-hmm. So this is from an explainer I found written in Scientific American, written by Amir Karadmond, who is a neurologist with Johns Hopkins Medicine. And Karadmond has has this different explanation. He says, quote, if we rotate our head to the right while our eyes remain focused on an object straight ahead, our eyes naturally move to the left at the same speed. This involuntary response allows us to stay focused on a stationary object. Uh, And this is really physiologically important, right? Like for the body to function, you need to be able to keep focused on something while you're moving around. You know, Mm -hmm. otherwise it would be really difficult to like – hunt or fight or, you know, do anything like that if you can't stay focused even while your body is moving. So the eyes adjust as as the body moves. Um, 
But Karadman continues, quote, Spinning is more complicated. When we move our head during a spin, our eyes start to move in the opposite direction, but reach their limit before our head completes a full 360-degree turn. So our eyes flick back to a new starting position mid-spin, and the motion repeats as we rotate. When our head rotation triggers this automatic repetitive eye movement called nystagmus, we get dizzy. Uh, so nystagmus again, yeah, it's this repetitive jerking around of the eyes. Um, and nystagmus can be triggered by certain kinds of stimuli. Like if you show people a rotating drum that has stripes painted on it, you can trigger nystagmus as the eye tries to track the fast moving stripes as, as they go past. Um, but another interesting fact I found is that nystagmus plays an important role in the arsenal of field sobriety tests used by law enforcement. So the, the normal procedure for this is if uh, you know uh, a police officer is trying to do a, a field sobriety test on somebody they've pulled over, they will ask them to hold their head still. And then they will ask the subject to follow a moving stimulus with their eyes without moving their head. And then you mm -hmm. move the stimulus steadily sort of in an arc around toward the person's side. And as they follow it with their eyes, supposedly there are types of nystagmus or these repetitive jerking movements of the eyes that are usually indicative of intoxication. Though I should note that uh, just in poking around a little bit, it looks like there's some controversy over the reliability of this test and its use by police. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you have a tricorder type device that you hold up and and scan the eyes. It's based on what the uh, the, the police officer is observing and then reporting regarding the movement, the, the 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 slight movements of the individual's eyes. Right. And so this is interesting because I feel like now we've got at least two different explanations. In fact, it, this would be getting into a whole other can of worms. I found another explanation in a very short explainer article. Uh, for the BBC by a uh, by a zoologist and science communicator who who framed their explanation more in terms of the brain getting desensitized to spinning input and then deciding to ignore it. And then when you stop spinning, the canceling out it has had to do of the spinning input is uh, is suddenly counterproductive and makes you think the body is still moving. I, I'm going to ignore that one for now. And look at these other main two explanations. So one is about the inertia of the fluids in the canals in the inner ear as as you spin around and, and that inertia causing a feeling of spinning even after the body has stopped spinning. The other is uh, is about this very different thing about what's happening with the eyes when you spin around. And so I actually – I was like maybe I can get some insight onto which of these is correct uh, though, though I guess – one thing I should say is that these explanations are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, it could be that both of these things contribute to dizziness. Um, but I wanted to get some insight on this by experimenting on myself. I was actually lying in bed last night thinking about this, trying to sort out like why these two different explanations have come across, uh, which one could be correct or more correct. And I decided I had to get up out of bed and spin around to test this out. So, um, <laughs> So I recognize this experiment is just on me. I just did it once. This is not going to pass peer review. This is not scientifically rigorous, but it was at least interesting to me. So what what I did was I tried spinning around for 12 revolutions uh, 
both in two different conditions, one with my eyes closed, so I'd be unlikely to experience nystagmus, and one with my eyes open, so I would be. And I was trying to go at a constant speed. Uh, I tried to keep the number of revolutions the same for, for each test condition um, and, and have the only thing different being whether my eyes were open or closed. So I will say I felt dizzy after both spinning sessions. <laughs> but I felt significantly worse, significantly dizzier after the one with my eyes open, though it's complicated because that was the second one I did. So there could also be cumulative effects. I tried to rest in between them, but I didn't rest that long. And so there could have been cumulative effects where it wasn't necessarily that spinning with the eyes open is worse, but just that I'd spun around in circles 24 times recently instead of 12 times after that one. So uh, the other thing is I really, really do not recommend spinning in circles 24 times before bed. I was lying there feeling pretty gross. Yeah, yeah. D definitely, as you listen to these episodes, you're going to want to try a little bit of spinning. That's understandable. And uh, we encourage that. But please be careful. Please be careful spinning uh, and you know, realize that you will probably become dizzy. And I mean, you don't want to suffer a fall or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think my, my personal experiment really settled the question. And, and it could be there are confounding variables, variables but I did find that it at least seemed possible to me that having your eyes open during spinning makes the dizziness issue significantly worse than than spinning with the eyes closed, which would seem to lend some credence to the explanation offered by Karadmond that it has something to do with the uh, the, the movement of the eyes. Hmm. But like I said, it, it, it could be the case that actually both of these things contribute to dizziness and they were just emphasizing different aspects of why we get dizzy from spinning. Though there's another idea that I that I got, I guess maybe a hypothesis that uh, my experiment brought up, which is what if dizziness from spinning is strongly influenced by the amount of time spent spinning as opposed to just the number of rotations? So if we're, you know, in a minute, we're going to talk about like ballerinas and skaters. You would have to think that if a skater does 10 turns really fast as, a, as opposed to me doing, you know, 10 or 12 turns pretty slow standing in my bedroom – uh, is the, is, you know, that the skater would have it worse, but, but maybe it's actually worse to be spinning for a longer period of time slower than a shorter period of time really fast. Well, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about the art of spinning, particularly as it relates to ballet dancers and figure skaters. So uh, certainly both of these involve a fair amount of spinning around in circles. These are two of the most amazing, amazing examples. Figure skaters, ball ballerinas, ballet, ballet dancers, whose feats of spinning athletics are certainly enough to cause feelings of, uh, of vertigo in the viewer, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and yet we don't see these individuals tremendously affected, you know, like, like if, if, a, if a dancer does, a, you know, a really impressive uh, pirouette, uh, they don't immediately fall uh, onto the floor, or at least th that's not supposed to happen. Um, uh, the same goes for figure skaters, right? They do some phenomenal spin, and then they're out in form to continue their routine. Right. I mean, so if if I, spinning around slowly like 12 times, have to stumble to my bed afterwards, <laughs> like yeah. what, how, do, how do you continue a, a really difficult, intricate, you know, executing dance moves or, or – uh, or, or continuing to skate. I mean, skating alone is difficult enough. 
uh, right. with your balance thrown off like it like you would think it should be after one of those spinning moves. Yeah, and, and yet they're not. And and what it basically seems to come down to is that they've essentially trained their brains not to pay as much attention to the input from, from the vestibular system. So not to be thrown off by the signals coming in. And this is something that, that comes through just continual practice and the ratcheting up of your sort of spinning tolerance. Yeah, this seems to be what I was reading as well. It's, it seems to be one, one of the main explanations is just conditioning. It's like practice and conditioning of the brain to not get as thrown off by the, the, the vestibular system's response to spinning. Right. And it's in and, and that's not to discount it. It's like it's really impressive. Uh, I was looking at a paper about this uh, a 2013 Imperial College London study published in the journal Cerebral Cortex uh, by the by Nig- Nigma Tolina et al. And it, it was looking at why dancers don't get dizzy. So what they did is they looked at 29 female dancers and 20 female age-matched controls with no dancing experience. And this is, uh, we see this in another study we'll talk about in the second episode, where basically you have your expert spinners and your control group is going to consist of people who are more or less comparable individuals just without that spinning experience, without that dancing experience in this case. Mm -hmm. So they, they took these individuals and they put them through a series of spinning tests in a chair in a dark room. Um, then they measured the brains of the two groups uh, and how the volunteers reacted to the spinning. And they found that the dancers recovered faster than the non-dancers. Basically, the dancers' brains have adapted over years of training to suppress the input that causes dizziness. It's a case of training-related brain plasticity. It's the sort of thing that uh, you know, could one day be used to actually treat other conditions. Knowledge of this could be used to treat other conditions uh, and enhance our understanding of how the brain heals itself. Now, many ballet dancers, including those used in this study, use something called spotting in their training. Yeah, that explainer by Karadmond mentions this, that uh, I think more so for ballet dancers than for ice skaters. Uh, but yes. The, having to do with the, the speed of the rotation. But the ballet dancers use this trick of uh, how they move the head and focus the vision to prevent them being overwhelmed by uh, nystagmus was the reason he cited for it. Right. I believe this is pretty well presented in, uh, I mean, you can you can see it in dance. Mm-hmm. And if you are like me and most of your ballet experience these days comes from watching ballet horror movies like the the two Suspirias <laughs> and Black Swan, then you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's really, uh, you know, interesting to watch the way their head seems to like swing back around to the same position as their body spins. Uh-huh. You focus as the dancer, you focus your eyes on one area in front of you as you spin around over and over again. And this helps you stay steady. You keep moving your head around to the same point while the body spins. But the authors in this particular study say that that spotting alone isn't enough to account for the ability. And likewise, as you mentioned, figure skaters don't really do spotting. Not exactly. Uh, So basically, figure skaters are spinning way too fast, for one thing. Though I've read that some figure skaters do use a form of spotting to count their revolutions. So just, just counting how many times a particular spot on the ice passes you by. Uh, they may also instantly focus on something as they come out of an intense spin in order to get their bearings straight. But as with ballet dancers, figure skaters simply get used to the spin. I was reading that they, they only really feel dizzy when they start upping their spin levels in training, but then their, their bodies, uh, their minds adjust to that as well. Okay, so it sounds like it's not just like there is a trick to not 
feeling dizzy from spinning. It's, there are tricks like spotting, but that doesn't fully explain it. A lot of it's probably just conditioning. It's just practice. Right. The more you spin, the more your your brain becomes accustomed to this input and realizes, yeah, the spinning is what we do. This is we can we can it basically acclimatizes to the the spinning reality. It makes me wonder if you could uh, you know create a generation of like super ballerinas or super skaters by by bringing them up from from infancy in an environment where they are deeply desensitized to like different types of vestibular uh, disorientation. Like if you maybe if you raise them in space or something. <laughs> um, well, I mean, on one hand, I feel like what you just described doesn't seem that far from like the really hardcore world of uh, of professional dance, right? Yeah, like I guess. just start conditioning them very young. But on the space question, uh, I, I looked that up as well. Uh, you know, can you get dizzy in space? I mean, what does dizziness in space consist of? And I found an Avery Thompson piece on Popular Mechanics that discussed this, citing personal experiments, um, you know, personal, um, you know, informal experiments performed by astronaut Tim Peake, and basically. Basically, it's a case, again, of, of, of the brain adapting. In this case, the brain adapting to the initial feeling of spinning that one experiences in low gravity, and the brain adapts to this change. And then it's very difficult to feel dizzy, um, Peak says, unless sudden acceleration is involved. Mm-hmm. I think this was the ultimate plan of that guy from Moonraker. He wanted to like... <laughs> You know, he was like going to sterilize the earth or kill all the humans. And he's like moved all of his uh, beloved people up to the to the space station. Clearly, he's trying to create a generation of super ballerinas to rule the the post-apocalyptic earth. Oh, man. Yeah. Moonraker. So good. I feel like Moonraker is probably <laughs> so the, good, huh? the one Bond film we could do for Weird House Cinema. Like, oh, it's my the, God. It, we could. Yeah. It's the weirdest. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, well, I don't know. Maybe that last Pierce Brosnan movie with the invisible car and the castle made of ice. That that's oh, we, that, oh I never saw that one, but I, yeah, I have heard it has some pretty bonkers elements to it. It's up there with Moonraker for for weirdness. Those are the two okay. weirdest ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, this was part one. Uh, we're going to come back for part two. And in part two, we're going to discuss, among other things, um, meditative states and spinning. We're going we're gonna to discuss um, uh, the, the Su- Sufi whirling, uh, Sufi mysticism, and, uh, and the, the, the spinning that is involved in that, and, uh, and a particular study that looks at, at it. Uh, so we hope that you will come back for that episode. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, if you want to find us really quickly, you can go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that will shoot you over to uh, uh, to uh, what our iHeart listing. And there's a, a, a place on there you can click for our store. That'll take you to our T-shirt store. And if you know, just for fun, if you want to pick up uh, a T-shirt with our logo on it, a sticker, a tote bag, whatever, uh, you can find it there. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.